We're in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, and in the Pew Bible, it is page 713. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. But he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Lisa. The beginning of something is always significant. We've all been taught how important making a good and first impression can be. Still, as impactful as the beginning of something is, I think we can all agree the ending matters even more. How the plane takes off isn't as impactful as how it lands. Where you find yourself at the end of that first date is more significant than how it starts. It's the ending that really makes it or breaks it, that either brings it all home or leaves us hanging. So we gather together this Easter morning to hear the end of the story, specifically the end of the story in the gospel according to Mark. As you heard it read on Sunday morning, three women, Mary, Mary Magdalene, and Salome, who have been followers of Jesus, go out to the tomb to anoint his body. On their way there, these women are discussing how they're going to manage the large rock covering the entrance to the tomb. Their conversation doesn't last long as they arrive to find the stone has already been rolled away. Concerned, they look inside only to discover a young man sitting there dressed in white who tells them not to worry. Jesus, who was crucified, has been raised from the dead. Take a look around if you want, but go and tell Peter and the rest of his disciples that he is risen and he'll meet them in Galilee. The women, however, are so collectively freaked out by all this, they leave the gravesite and don't say anything to anyone. That's it? Really? Three women discover the tomb is empty, are so terrified and amazed, so bewildered and afraid, they run away and don't tell anyone? What kind of Easter story is that? This is what Mark calls a good ending? Doesn't he know what we went through to get here today? We got all dressed up in these nice Easter outfits. We put on nice shoes. Some of us were even dragged out of bed and brought here by our moms. You know who you are. And this is what we get? What happened to the happy ending? You know, the one where Jesus actually makes an appearance? This is the only Easter story where Jesus never shows his face. It's his resurrection, his coming out party, and Jesus doesn't even show up. What kind of ending is this? Did Mark lose the last page of the story or something? 
We're not alone in our frustration here. If you still have your Bibles open, you'll notice Mark's earliest readers wanted a better ending too. And they got it. The ending, this ending, is seemingly so bad that somewhere along the line, a monk, probably in the second century, was reading this ending while he was making a copy of the gospel, and he decided to try to spruce it up a bit by adding about 11 verses to it. Drawing material from other gospels and the book of Acts, he gave us the conclusion we were looking for. News of the resurrection gets started. Jesus shows up and ascends to heaven. The disciples go forth. It's wonderful. Except for that weird stuff about drinking poison and picking up snakes. I'm serious. Trust me, it's in there. It's weird. It's a nice try for a more satisfying ending. But we all know, our Bibles even tell us, this is probably not what Mark wrote. So what are we supposed to do with all this? Well, we could just fill in the resurrection story with the more extensive, the more detailed accounts we get from the other three gospel writers. Great stuff, like John's account of Jesus appearing to the devastated Mary Magdalene who first confuses him with the gardener. Or Luke's beautiful story of those two guys on the road to Emmaus who don't recognize Jesus walking and talking with, him, with them until he breaks bread with them and then just disappears. Or how about Matthew's edition of the Great Commission, especially Jesus' encouraging words, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now we're getting somewhere. These are the kind of stories we like to hear about on Easter. And taken together, they do indeed offer us a fuller picture of the resurrected Jesus as his closest followers and friends first experienced him. But, and you can verify this later if you'd like, None of the gospel writers tell us the end of the story either. So the question is, why is the ending missing from all the gospel accounts? Why does Mark conclude his version of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus so abruptly? Maybe Mark intended to leave us wanting more. Maybe the beauty of Mark's gospel is that it is so open-ended. Maybe Mark abandons us in the middle of the action in order to leave us with a question. What will we do as we encounter the empty tomb? Mark leaves the, the message of the resurrection undeclared as if to present us with a choice. We stand with the women at the empty tomb and it's easy to judge these women who came to anoint the body. How could they not tell the disciples about the stone that was rolled away? How could they not pass along the message of Jesus' resurrection? But what about us? What will we do now that we have encountered an empty tomb? Now that we have heard the news that Jesus is risen from the dead, will we run away in fear? Will we remain silent? But go tell. But Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. Therefore, you will see him just as he told you. But go tell. Three words. What will we do in response to them? Let's consider them in reverse order. Tell. We start here. We start here because the meaning is in the message. The motivation to share the news depends on what it is and why it matters. And this is a message for the world, but you'll notice these first witnesses at the tomb have to receive it first themselves. And as Mark shares with us, these women are bewildered and alarmed. They are afraid. 
The description of fear that initially predominates the Easter story in all the gospel accounts is more than just the description of a few women or a couple of disciples. It's the naming of a universal human condition that persists to this very day. All of the gospel writers highlight the initial context of the gospel message is one of fear because the effect of the resurrection always begins in whatever place of darkness, defeat, or despair we find ourselves. In other words, telling about Jesus begins by facing and naming our fears. Considered one of the greatest poems ever written, William Butler Yeats' The Second Coming still resonates for many people almost a hundred years after it was penned. Written in 1919 while the nations of the world were still reeling after the devastation of World War I, Yeats's poem reflects the quick disillusionment and lost idealism of a new century. Then as now, truly grave threats have been loosed upon the world creating a climate of fear and foreboding. Yeats wrote, the blood-dimmed tide is loosened and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. He finally concludes, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. What Yeats is expressing is the fear that at the deepest center of things, there is no God in charge. How about us? Do we ever find ourselves like Yeats pondering such words? Things are falling apart. Can the center hold? Where do we turn when things fall apart? Where do we turn when she says, it's over? I'm leaving you. I want a divorce. When he says, you're not welcome here anymore. You're no child, no friend of mine. Don't ever contact me again. When the call starts, there's been an accident. Please, come quickly. When the conversation ends with, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. When the word arrives, your application, your submission, your request, your last best hope in terms of finding the right college, of finally landing a job, of being able to save your house or get out of debt has been rejected, denied, not approved. All this dissonance, our toil to earn a living, the pain of our broken relationships, our grief at loss, our frustration with life, all these realities can leave us paralyzed with fear or numb with indifference. But at some point, if we, if we dare to look to fully take in all the decay, the disorder, and even the death in this life and try to understand it, we ask, we have to ask, why are things this way? What is wrong with this world? A growing view among some is to shrug off such questions. To shrug off such questions by accepting disorder, decay, and yes, even death as the natural state of the universe. Part of the random noise, the chaos of the cosmos. There is no center. Nothing really underwrites us. We make our own meaning. But we as a species, as individuals, are no more significant than anything else in the universe. 
Nothing guarantees love, life, and goodness. Good things may well occur within history and within our lives, but they are, in the end, accidental constellations, random happenings, which are vulnerable to dissolution when the chance forces that produce them die. Any attempt to understand life, much less make sense of it beyond this, is doomed to fail. Any belief of life or meaning beyond the immediacy of this moment is fantasy, wishful thinking, a crutch. Others believe this can't be true. Some people sense in their bones that we are made for more than this, that we are more than this. We are more than just skin and bones. There is just something within them, a voice that cannot be silenced, whispering, this is not the way it is. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Are such people crazy? Delusional? Perhaps it is crazy and delusional to convince ourselves that the way things are is perfectly natural. That there's nothing wrong with the way things are. It's worth asking. Is it logical? Does it make sense that creatures produced by and adapted for their environment intuitively believe they are misplaced within it? Do other creatures feel this way? Do birds rebel against the wind and the skies they must navigate? Do fish rage against the sea, their confinement below its surface, their exposure to its immeasurable depths? Why then do we? There are countless other limitations we do not question. No one perceives a great injustice in our inability to breathe underwater or to jump off any height and not be able to fly. And yet... If sickness, incapacity, or injury lead us unexpectedly to death's door, there is a collective and personal sense of having been wronged, of unfairness and injustice. Why? Because we all have this innate sense of right and wrong that is drawing us back to somewhere. Even though we may often disagree about where that line between right and wrong is to be drawn, we at the very least agree there is a line. And so we find ourselves looking for something more, almost like a compass searching for true north because we have this vague awareness that life can be better. We can be better. The whole logic of the gospel is that we in this world were made for something better than this present, confused, broken mess in which we find ourselves. Clearly, this impulse is shared. Among these women and the first disciples, it would appear that there's more to it than an empty tomb and frightened, speechless followers. The earliest disciples told someone something somewhere eventually. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here this morning. So what's the news they were sharing? What are we supposed to be telling others? The story of the Bible declares that the creation of our world as well as the continuance of our existence is not a matter of chance. We were given life by our creator so that we would know him as our father and be loved by him as his children. We were given this world to be our home. We were given to each other to be a family. To all of these gifts... We have in some measure or another said, no thank you. Or to be more blunt, who needs you? I'm better off on my own. 
Our rejection of these gifts, our rebellion against our Father, and our shattering of creation are not acts of chance. They were and continue to be the result of purposeful exercises of our free will. Death entered the world through our disobedience. However, it's not our destiny to be born into a world of death merely to thrash about and die again. So Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, comes into our world. He embraces the way things are to show how things are supposed to be. Jesus reveals this alternative reality by embodying it through what he said, taught, and did. Jesus reveals the way things should be by living this life, our life as it is, without contributing to the chaos, the brokenness, the sin. But Jesus offers us more than a perfect example of the way things are supposed to be. Jesus also pays the price, covers the cost for the chaos, the destruction, the rebellion, the apathy that generations of human beings have and continue to leave in their wake. Jesus gives us his life. His innocence fills the gap of our guilt and that the nobility of his sacrifice is enough to make right all that has been so wrong is vindicated by his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the living proof that evil and death no longer limit our lives, that the way things are don't have to be the way things stay, that the way things are supposed to be are the way things will be. In exchange for our individual bodies which are broken, frightened, and hurting, Jesus gives us his, a new kind of body, restored, hopeful, whole, the body of Christ. And so in Jesus, our lives come full circle. At the center of all things, there is a gracious personal God who is powerful and willing enough to underwrite everything and hold us all together in a circle of love that is eternal, that can never be broken. Make no mistake, the story we're telling, the good news we're sharing is not just some theoretical premise. It's more than a matter of orthodoxy or some raw intellectual commitment. Tell, but go. Telling others Jesus is risen is an exercise of faith, a faith that requires movement, down-to-earth, everyday, elemental movement. Going to tell starts by getting wet. Diving into waters of baptism, waters that cleanse us, fill us, and transform us into new persons, a people no longer identified by gender, color, or socioeconomic status, but set apart and remade through our identification in Jesus. Going and telling about the risen Jesus is more than the declaration of a creed. It is Jesus, the word made flesh, the word of hope spoken to power, power made perfect through our weakness, the weakness of our inadequacies, the weakness of our failings, and the weakness even of our deaths. Unlike all other forms of power, the power of the word that is Jesus, the truth of the resurrection, derives its authority from the kingdom of God. It is authoritative, not because we speak of Jesus as Lord, not because we shout this morning, he is risen. He is risen indeed. It is authoritative in a lived sense. Through the witness, sacrifice, and dedication of our lives to acts of compassion and mercy. Faith in the resurrection of Jesus is practical, but it's practical only insofar as it is practiced, lived out, trusted, leaned, relied, and built upon as a way of life, going and telling about the risen Jesus means we must practice resurrection. 
Because as we like to say, practice makes perfect. And we practice the resurrection every time we come to this table to touch and taste the bread and wine of this feast of love and grace. A meal that asks us not just to receive, but to share from all we're given in Christ. We practice resurrection when we take what we are given in Christ, grace, love, and hope, and offer the body and blood of Jesus to others through tangible, day-to-day movements to reconcile, to redeem, and yes, even resurrect all that is lost, all who are forsaken. You see, for Mark, we have to go because the risen Jesus is still out there somewhere. The resurrected Jesus is still caring for the sick, sitting with the people no one else wants to sit with, loving the very people who hate and betray him. Now and again, someone will say to me, it's often after this service, the Easter service, you know, I'd believe in the resurrection if I could just see the risen Jesus. And my answer is always the same. If we want to see Jesus for ourselves, then we have to go and tell. Because when we share the good news about Jesus in word and deed, others see the risen Jesus through us, and we see him through them. Because Jesus is resurrected whenever we give life through acts of love, not just to our neighbors, but even to our enemy. Jesus is risen whenever we elevate the expression of mercy and grace in a world that's hell-bent on revenge and punitive damages. Jesus lives whenever we roll away the stones that keep others trapped in the darkness in situations of abuse and addiction that can feel like tombs and release them from the death sentences that they have imposed upon themselves or to which others have condemned them. When we truly understand Jesus is risen, Jesus lives, Jesus is out there going ahead of us, we don't just tell, talk about it. We go, we follow him and allow him to work through us. Tell, go, but. There's always a but, isn't there? But we come back to where we started. Mark leaves the message of the resurrection undeclared as if to present us with a choice. The choice to honestly believe what we are hearing. The choice to actually live out of what we profess to believe. It's easy, beloved, for us to become the walking dead despite the news of the resurrection. We can go through the motions, go to church twice a year, once a month, yes, even every week, and publicly sing and pray and declare that we believe in the resurrection and yet live as if we're haunted by the fear that things are falling apart. Alarmed by the appearance that the center is not holding and therefore silently worried, there is no hope. We can wear and look our best, talk of resurrection on Sunday, but forget forsake or fall away from practicing resurrection as we drudge through Monday to Saturday with distrust and disillusionment and oozing cynicism. But Mark wants us to understand we have a choice not only to believe but to go and tell, to live and act differently in light of the resurrection. This year, Holy Week, the gospel story has been a little different for me. It has hit home in more ways than one. 
About a week ago, my grandfather was admitted to the hospital for congestive heart failure. A couple of days later, he was in hospice. Yesterday afternoon, he breathed his last breath and left this earth. Was his life random and meaningless? Was death the last word in his life? Will ashes and a burial plot be all that is left of him? Does everything begin to fall apart now that someone we have dearly loved is no longer with us? Is there no hope? These are the questions that come. These are the questions that always come when we stand in a room and see them take away the body. The vacant, unresponsive frame of someone we have loved. When we can no longer hear their voice or their laugh. No longer feel the warmth of their touch. No longer see the light in their eyes. These are the questions that come. But I have a choice. To run away in fear or go and walk by faith. To drown in my tears or to float on the hope that is ours, yours and mine in Christ. To stay silently bewildered or to boldly tell others as I say to you this morning, my grandfather is risen. He is risen indeed. He lives because there is someone stronger than death. Someone who has been victorious over the grave. In Christ, sin has lost its power. Death has lost its sting. We did not fall apart at his passing. In Christ, we were held together in a circle of love as a family. As we released my grandfather into the arms of Jesus yesterday, we were held together. Confident and assured that we were not making our goodbyes but simply awaiting to see him again. This is my testimony to you this Easter morning. This is what I believe. This is how I live. Not just as a pastor, but as a pilgrim. Not just as a spectator, but as a participant in this broken world in which we live, Jesus continues to labor in and through our lives to hand himself over, to suffer, and if necessary, even to die in the midst of the pain of this world so that we can continue to be raised with him from among the dead. Call it a fable. Call it a fantasy. Call me crazy. I call it the gospel. It's the reason we can get up, not just today, but every moment of our lives and go. It's the good news, so great a story, so wonderful a promise, so promising an answer. If we really get it, if we truly practice resurrection, we can't help but tell everyone and anyone. The invitation to believe in Jesus, like the tomb he was once in, is open. It is open because death's reign has ended. It is open because love and forgiveness are ours in Jesus and grace like that can't be contained. It just has to come out. 
because the tomb is open, because resurrection happens, we are not at the end of the story. More than 2,000 years have passed and we still haven't reached the ending of the story yet. And we won't because in Christ, we are the continuation of that story. Thanks to Jesus, rather than facing a dead end, we discover the possibilities are endless. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, what a savior indeed. Amen.